This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Well, good morning, church. If you would, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles near you, you can find our passage this morning on page 573. It's page 573. It's a family service. Uh, So parents of small children, if they make noise, that's fine. That's not your problem if people are offended by that. That's their problem. Uh, We're all in here together. We're here to enjoy. (laughs) I don't know if that's good that we're clapping that people get offended by, but that's okay. But I'm just saying, we're on the... On Christmas Eve, we're here together to open God's Word as we have already uh, sung His promises. We're going to hear them together. In Isaiah, we have one of the clearest prophecies of the birth of Jesus. And so it's appropriate and fitting that we ought to read and delight in this passage this Christmas Eve. So Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read the first seven verses. God speaks through the prophet But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, the Christmas season, the Advent season is a time of anticipation for many in our country. It's anticipation of celebrations, reunions, some of them happening right here in this this room, and we give and receive gifts. There's Also the anticipation for some of difficult feelings or a celebration that's been changed through loss. I wonder if you've ever noticed how many Christmas songs build anticipation or have a built-in sense of longing. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used to know if we lived somewhere else in Florida. (laughs) It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. Even our hymns 
O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. We hum these tunes, and maybe our spirits lift. For some of us, maybe our spirits sink. But the songs capture anticipation. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is a passage of anticipation, but not for snow or sweets, but for a destiny greater than what we can imagine. It's an anticipated king. But what I hope you see and what I hope to show you is that in order for us to anticipate this king rightly, Isaiah needs to show us and we need to see first the broken kingdom, which is our first point this morning. The broken kingdom. Our passage opens with a people who are in anguish, who are in gloom. The anguish and gloom is tied to what Isaiah has been saying before this text. So if you look, if you let your eyes drift just to the end of Isaiah chapter 8, right in front of you, verses, specifically verses 21 and 22, we read this. They, this is God's people, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah is describing God's people in a dark place, not nighttime, but a darkness of suffering. A soul darkness. These verses come at the end of God's pronouncement that Assyria, a great world power in the time of Isaiah's prophecy, was coming to conquer Israel. And this conquering was God's judgment. And yet, these hard, true words that the Lord is giving his people form the backdrop of the glorious promises of Isaiah 9. You see, God's saving promises to us shine brightest when we see them against the backdrop of the darkness of our world. Isaiah shows us this broken kingdom in at least four ways. Isaiah shows us the kingdom is broken because it's conquered, saying in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. At this point in Israel's history, portions of the kingdom had already been conquered by Assyria. We read this in 1 Kings 15. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Avil, Bath-Machah, Genoa, Kedesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, and the land, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. Israel's northern kingdom didn't fall in a day, but gradually she was conquered. And to God's people, the thought of losing their kingdom was, was an unthinkable reality. And in, and in Isaiah's day, for every prophet warning the people that God's wrath was coming, there were a myriad, there were tons of false prophets who would say, God's never going to do such a thing to Israel. Israel was so high on their own prosperity that they did not see that they had abandoned the Lord and that the Lord had departed from them. Isaiah's warning is clear. The kingdom's fall is already happening. The enemy has already come to the lands of God's people. 
And then a second way Isaiah describes this brokenness is in the brokenness of the kingdom in its darkness. In verse 2, he refers to the people who walked in darkness, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. Those two verbs are important for us. They're walked, which is a metaphor for living, and secondly, dwelt, which speaks of sitting and inhabiting. The picture Isaiah is painting is a people who are in complete darkness. And the darkness Isaiah is describing is that God's people had a complete loss of purpose and direction. They had lost communion with the God who had saved them. They would have the ever-present reality of fear and anxiety and the choking reality of depression and despair. All these hallmarks of the kingdom of darkness. And it's important for us to recognize that before this moment, what led to the darkness was not bad circumstances or military weakness or just just plain bad luck. No, the people who were walking, living, dwelling in darkness were there by their own doing. God's people weren't just down on their luck. They were rebels against the God who had saved them and who loved them. They were a rescued people who had suffered under the Egyptian rule as slaves whom God had rescued and then fashioned into a kingdom of great power and majesty. And amid their blessed life, they had become convinced and consumed by their own greatness, thinking we no longer need Yahweh. We don't need God. We'll be just fine without him. Look how strong we are. The darkness they faced was one of their own making. And it's the same with us. I mean, not every struggle we face or or suffering that we endure is directly related to a sin we committed. But don't kid yourself. Every struggle we have is related to sin because we live in a sin-broken world. Whether you sin against someone or someone sins against you or because we live in brokenness, darkness comes from within us, not from outside of us. This is what the Lord Jesus said so clearly in Mark 7, verses 14 through 15. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Isaiah has told God's people the uncomfortable but clear truth that they walked in darkness because they chose the darkness. And this is true of every human who's ever lived, everyone in this room, each one of us. We are not, by nature, little rays of sunshine. In fact, we are, by nature, little black holes. We are by nature sinful, selfish, rotten from the inside out. And I don't think I have to convince you that this is true. We actually know this. I mean, we may try to convince ourselves that we're okay, that we just need to love ourselves some more. We just need to accept ourselves some more. We need more self-care. But the honesty of God is a great help to each of us. The Lord doesn't give you a laundry list of ways to fix yourself. Just try harder. Just do better. Just focus more on yourself. No, God is gracious to point out to us, you can't fix you. I must fix you. He reveals our darkened blindness 
and then grants us sight to see the light. And the Lord has given his people this hard truth through the beginning of Isaiah that judgment awaits them, but that his wrath, his judgment will not be his final act. Wrath will not be the end of his people. He will judge, but destruction will not be the period at the end of the sentence of the story of his people. I mean, some of you need that reminder this Christmas. Maybe all of us do. For some Christians, Christmas is a season of bittersweetness or just bitterness. It can be a time filled with memories that feel much darker than light. And if that's you this morning, you aren't weird, you're not odd, you're not doing it wrong, you're experiencing life in a broken kingdom. And weary Christian, hear me, do not allow the evil one to steal the light from your heart. Don't let him take what God gives from your soul. There is hope. Darkness does not win. Gloom does not triumph. Even if right now you are walking in sadness, fear, and anxiety, don't give up on the Lord's promises. Hold fast to what is true. Reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ. They can't fix you, but they can point you to the one who restores. Because he's our rebuilding king. Then in verse 4, we see the brokenness of the kingdom in oppression. Verse 4 uses three words to describe the experience of God's people. They are under a burden of a yoke, like a yoke for oxen. They are under the staff and the rod. Two pictures of discipline. It's amazing because the word pictures Israel as slaves again, no longer citizens. And the reality is that this is a pronouncement that the coming judgment of God would include exile. They would be exiled from Jerusalem, from the land. The people of God chose not to be ruled by God who loved them and saved them, so in judgment they would be ruled by the nations they chose who would oppress them and enslave them. Then in verse 5, finally, Isaiah shows the kingdom's brokenness in war. Verse 5 gives us images of, of, of war that are, are visceral, filth-covered boots and blood-soaked clothes. Nothing like that for a Christmas Eve morning, right? It's the ultimate image of a kingdom of brokenness, pictures of death and violence. When God planted the Garden of Eden, the garden was full of life. And the command for his image-bearing couple to be fruitful and multiply stands as the joyful duty of creation. And yet, here we see the implements of war and the evidence of death show that this kingdom isn't what it once was. Not as it should be. And against all of that darkness, God shines his light through the prophet Isaiah. In the darkest of places... For every example I just listed of the kingdom's brokenness, there is a counter-promise of God who rebuild his kingdom. So the second thing I want to show you this morning is our rebuilding king. To each evidence of brokenness, our rebuilding king responds with how he's going to restore. In verse 1, he is the king who removes shame. 
Did you hear that? The lands that were first to be conquered would no longer be a pathway of doom, but a path for glory. Because someone's going to come from Galilee, whose coming was from of old, whose presence would not mean destruction or exile, but would mean people would be gathered in whose footsteps would lead into Jerusalem, up the hill of Calvary, and out of an empty grave. The land of Galilee, once signaling doom to God's people, is now a beacon of hope. The way, once shrouded in contempt because of the entry of the enemy, will be made glorious because it's the path of the king. Then in verse 2, he's the king of light. The darkness that surrounded and threatened to consume the life of God's people meets with indomitable light. Here Isaiah says the ones who walked and dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. And on them light has shone. This light dispels the darkness. We know this source of light, don't we, if we're Christians? In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who's the hymn? Who is, that's right. I love it when the kids are in there. That's right. Amen. The hymn, who is this light and life-possessing being? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. The Son of God, Jesus, is the light bringer to darkened souls. He restores to us what darkness steals from us. In verse 3, he is the king who multiplies his people and increases their joy. I mean, the darkness and the sorrow which the people formerly walked is replaced by an overwhelming joy from this king of light when the Lord rescues us from darkness and brings us into his glorious light, his joy becomes our joy. In the ESV and most other versions, verses 4 through 6, if you look at them, begin with the word for. Or we could use our English word there, because. In verse 3, the people who are in darkness and are now in the light are rejoicing and multiplying, but why and how? Verses 4 through 7 are the answer. Because, in verse 4, our king brings freedom. The yoke, the rod, and the staff of the oppressor is shattered by this king. And Isaiah roots this future hope for God's people in God's past faithfulness. And Christian, this is important for you as you read your Bible, especially the Old Testament. The Lord has been faithful to his people in both blessing and judgment. So we can be sure that he will continue to be faithful and will do all that he said he will do. And Isaiah drives home with a reference to the day of Midian, which I'm sure immediately all of us remember exactly what he's talking about. But for those of you who can't, I'll help. He refers to the book of Judges here, the story of Gideon. The people of God were oppressed horribly by the people of Midian. And the Lord raises up Gideon, a cowardly and flawed man. But Gideon raises an army of roughly 32,000 troops. They're going to go against Midian, but the Lord says, nah, that's too many. Specifically because he says, if you go, you might be tempted to think that you were the real conquerors here. 
Kind of like as if the whole time they were being oppressed, they just needed to look deep inside themselves and pull up their bootstraps and go and conquer the enemy. The Lord knows our tendencies. Now, the Lord reduces the number from 32,000 to 300. A laughable and paltry force against the glory and power of Midian. Then in Jericho-like fashion, the warriors sound trumpets and break pots, which startles the forces of Midian. They begin to slaughter themselves in confusion. And when they flee, the army of God's people follow, and Gideon himself strikes down the kings, breaking the yoke of oppression. Not by his power, but in the power of God. The shattering work of God is as sure for us as it was through Gideon. If Gideon was weak and lowly and the army small and insignificant, the one who will break the oppression of God's people under God's wrath will do so in no less of a dramatic fashion. And it will be Yahweh himself who will conquer. He will break the yoke, the staff, and the rod. No enemy of God's people can stand before his wrath and power. And the people rejoice because our rebuilding king is our king who brings peace. Peace has come. Because all of the implements of war are discarded. Did you notice that? Tramping boots and blood-rolled garments, they have a use in this new kingdom, under this new king, but not for battle. They're useful only to be fuel for a fire. Can you imagine that? Every weapon, no longer useful except to be burned, so that we might warm ourselves in this kingdom of peace. Seems too good to be true, but it is true. Our peace-bringing king will usher in a peace in which battle is done. Notice how specific Isaiah paints with his brush. Every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood will be burned. In this rebuilt kingdom, the tools of war are not needed because like in Eden, there will really be peace. Not only do God's people rejoice because of freedom and peace, but then we look at verse 6, because our king will come for us. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. I mean, maybe if we're honest enough, when we read our Bibles, we might question, how does a child end war? bring multiplication of a people, break oppression, and even end darkness. Because this child is born a king. And not only will this child accomplish restoration, he's the rightful ruler because Isaiah says the government, which government? Yes. All will be upon his shoulder. Isaiah is speaking of total rule, one who has the right and authority and rule and govern, who can govern everything. And the only one that you and I know who has the right as king to rule over everything that's ever existed and exists now is the one true and living God. This is not just any child or any mere son. This is a son who is unique and he has titles. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
wonderful counselor, this son who is a king will possess supernatural wisdom. This king will not need an abundance of counsel and counselors for himself to tell him what to do. He will possess all of the wisdom needed to rule. He will not need counsel because he himself is the wonderful counselor that his people need. He's the mighty God. This son is the mighty God. Isaiah Isaiah declares God is who will come, but as a child, the God of limitless power and might will come like his people, even as a baby. I mean, we can understand Mary's question, right? Like, so how can these things be? The son who comes is himself the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. Wait. The son who is born is the everlasting father? What's happening here? Well, this isn't confusion in the Trinity, but rather this, that the coming king will rule his people as a father. This title describes the nature of the coming king's rule. One scholar noted that when the title father is applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament, it points to his concern for the helpless the care or discipline of his people, and their loyal and reverential response to him. In this title, the king who comes will not rule as a dictator over his people, but a father who never fails. His fatherly care is eternal, and he will be called Prince of Peace. How beautiful is it to know that this king is not a warmonger. He's not afraid of battle. But this king will usher the end of conflict and war. This son will bring freedom, not only from darkness, but from the fear and anxiety and loss of war because he is himself peace. And the greatest peace that the people of God needed was not with other nations at this point, though that's what they thought. The greatest peace they needed was with Yahweh their God. Like Adam and Eve before them, they had thrown off the authority of God and sought to be their own kings and rulers, all acts of cosmic treason. And each of us have followed in their footsteps. We followed that pattern. Just think of it. Your heart, my heart rejects the idea that someone else should instruct us how to live, can tell me how to feel, tell me what I should believe. We find it repulsive that any being would dare tell us that what you want is wrong. Your desire is not correct. Your dream is selfish. The Bible is clear. We aren't naturally faithful. We're naturally faithless. The idea of a prince of peace with brilliance and power who is a father to his children and will conquer all who oppose is actually terrible news to everyone in his way. But what if there was a way that we could have peace with this God King? What if there's a way that you and I could be one of his own? There is. The prince would make a way for peace with God through his own blood. The king who is coming would die as a rebel in the place of his enemies. Jesus, the coming king, died to bring peace so that we who put our faith in him would receive all the benefits of this kingdom. As Paul wrote centuries later, therefore, 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming king who brings us peace with God brings peace from God to the world he has the right to rule. And then verse 7. Far from an epilogue gives us an even more full picture of the coming king. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The coming king is no here today, gone tomorrow king. But as David showed us from the book of Hebrews just a few weeks back, Jesus is the same when? Yesterday, today, and forever. He is the king who was promised in 2 Samuel 7. He is the king whose government and peace will increase and will never fail who is just and right with power to uphold the kingdom for all eternity because he is the Lord. The coming king is the anticipated king. Friends, the glad tidings of Christmas are the good tidings of a king who came to rebuild and restore his broken kingdom because he is the true king, God himself. Who alone can rebuild broken people in a broken kingdom because he created us. The king of light piercing the darkness. It's dark in the Bible when Christmas is spoken, always a bolt from the blue for the broken. It's the valley of shadow, the land of the dead. It's no place in the inn, so he stoops to the shed. He's born to the shameful, bends to the weak, becomes the lowly, the God who can't speak. And yet what a word, this Savior who comes, our dismal, abysmal depths he plums, through crib and then cross to compass our life, to carry and conquer our brother in strife. He became what we are, our failures he shouldered to bring us to his life forever enfolded. It's Christmas now, whatever the weather. Some soak in the sun, some huddle together. But fair days or foul, our plight he embraces because real Christmas can shine in the darkest of places. That church is our hope of Christmas. And our hope is not yet complete. There is still darkness to be conquered, still wars to end, still joy to multiply. Jesus did come, and he inaugurated the kingdom. But our hope in Christmas is not a hope resigned to a stable in Bethlehem, but a hope fixed on the splitting of the sky with a trumpet sound. Hope for a king who was anticipated before and is still anticipated now. The one who came and will come again this Christmas. Beloved, look at your nativities, but not too much. Christmas isn't a time for only looking back. It's a time for us to look forward. We feel the weight of Isaiah 9 because though Jesus came and accomplished the work set before him, we still wait for the final restoration, for the final end to brokenness, the final end of every night in sorrow, the final triumphant joy That is eternal for all who believe. And just as sure, beloved church, just as sure as God kept his promise to send his son the first time, he will surely keep his promise to send Jesus for us again. Dear church, he has promised he will return. 
So let's follow Isaiah's lead. Let's see the manger and look to the sky. Would you pray with me? Father, on Christmas Eve, it is fitting to remember how you keep your promises. That we celebrate salvation won by the one who was born like us to save us. We thank you that this king, this son who was born, was also the perfect prophet who spoke all of your truth and our great high priest who intercedes for us at your right hand even now. So we rejoice this Christmas with the king who came. And Lord, help us to wait for his return eagerly. In Jesus' name.